Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, we return to our conversation with writer, director, and actor Bill Hader. He joined us back in 2022 around the release of Barry Season 3. The HBO hit is now in its fourth season and will be coming to a close this Sunday, May 28th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. The one-two Sunday punch of Succession and Barry has been pretty remarkable these last two months. And with these upcoming finales, it really feels like the end of an era. I think that feeling is probably exacerbated by a host of issues you've probably been reading about. The ongoing writer's strike, the IP-driven, tentpole obsession we've seen played out at every local movie theater across the country, the internet's morbid fascination with how AI will change Hollywood. All of these subjects are something we'll get into this summer, especially as we do episodes around the strike and AI in particular. But for today, before we say goodbye to these great shows, I just want to take a moment to celebrate what Bill Hader has done with Barry. The show, really to the very end here, has been inventive, funny, and willing to take real chances with bending genres and story structure. And so, at the top, we discuss plot points from episode one and two of Barry season three, but we quickly move into all the things that have made this latest season of the show possible. 
his upbringing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the influence of his late grandfather, his early years in Los Angeles, making it on SNL at 27, and how eventually, after a few pit stops, he found his way to Barry. This is undoubtedly one of my favorite episodes from last year, so I hope you enjoy it. Whether you've heard it before or are hearing it again today, I thank you for being here. If you have not heard our latest episode with Succession actor Alan Ruck, that's available wherever you do your listening. We'll also be back this Sunday with a new episode featuring director Nicole Holofcener discussing her latest film, You Hurt My Feelings. That film is coming out in theaters this weekend, May 26, from A24. But for today, here's my conversation with the one and only Bill Hader. Bill Hader, nice to meet you. Hi. You're in the process of finishing Barry as we speak, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have to mix episodes seven and eight. When you watch the first cut of any episode, you've said that you have a full-on mental breakdown. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Did that happen again, put in together this season? Yes, it's. uh, I can set my watch to it. I go in (laughs) with the editor, I sit, they start it, and then I have to see myself, I have to hear my voice, and then all the cool things I wanted to do are not really there. (laughs) (laughs) How quickly do you make that realization? It's like just you feel it. It's instinctual. The minute it starts, you're just like, this is wrong. This whole thing is wrong. I don't know what I was thinking. And then it's just this long process of getting it back to what you initially hoped it would be. And it gets there and in some ways it changes. Things change in a way that help it. It's sort of a gradual acceptance of your own Yeah, yeah. That you're mediocre and you you have a weird sounding voice and uh, I look more and more like my dad with each season, you know what I mean? Is that a problem? Yes. No offense, dad. You share the same name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a junior. So I just don't want people to like think that my dad got a show. Because it would just inflate his ego too much. Yeah, even more than it actually is. I mean, he'll be going crazy. No, my dad's a very sweet guy. So eventually you've come to terms with this new season. Are you you feeling marginally better now? Yeah, now that it's coming out and I'm getting like nice responses from people and but mostly, you know, you do it to make the thing. So it's like in the making of the thing is where it's at. So for me, it's when we sit in the mixing stage, which is the kind of last stage in the whole process. And you sit back and watch it and go, you know what, this came out all right. When it comes to the actual show itself, it picks up, I think, six months after season two. That's right, yeah. You've said that season one was about hope against an obstacle. Barry trying to get in touch with his emotions. Season two is about whether we can change our nature. Barry is a violent person, but can he leave that rage behind him? How would you describe the crux of season three? There's a lot of different things kind of happening in season three, but one is this idea of forgiveness and, and, and redemption and, and forgiveness being earned it has to be earned, as Noah Hank says in the first episode. But then this idea, is it actually like a thing? <laughs> like, is that possible? 
And can you forgive yourself? Do you think it is? I don't know. That's why we write the show. We ask ourselves these questions. And then the kind of cycle of things that I find really interesting. Like there are things as we were writing it, everyone's stories start to kind of parallel each other in an interesting way. But I would say forgiveness being earned ellipses if it is indeed a thing. (laughs) (laughs) To be determined. Yeah, yeah. We're still figuring it out. Well, you know, George Saunders, who we were talking about before, likes to say that uh, your job as a writer is to present the question, not... Yeah, that checkoff thing is like you present the problem, not the answer. That's true. And I'm a big proponent of that. You know, it's there's something in episode two that kind of... There was a scene where Barry wants Sally, his girlfriend, to put Kusno on her show. And she's like, I can't, you know, he's he's an asshole. Like, no one wants to work with him, you know. Has a horrible reputation. He has a terrible reputation. And Barry, his back's really against the wall. And it was only a matter of time before his rage issues come out. And he flips out on his girlfriend, puts her back up against the wall, gets in her face and screams at her. And then leaves. Now, what we shot initially was that that happens and then you see Sally on the side of her show and then she is texting and she has kind of like another, not necessarily a fight, but she's texting Barry and saying, are you okay? Was it, were you sad or, you know, whatever. And then, and then he's kind of re-triggered this kind of thing for her that she was in an abusive relationship and she's gone back and like kind of regressed into this kind of placating thing. And Elsie Fisher, who plays her co-star, sees the texts. We wrote that and then showed it to some people and everybody in the, you know, said, well, something would happen. Because, I mean, he really flips out her and people are seeing it like no one would say anything, you know? And someone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone would say something. What needs to happen to him is he needs to be reprimanded. She needs to file a report against him and blah, blah, blah. And then someone else said, but he doesn't, you know, these are the writers. These aren't, I'm not at Chick-fil-A. These are just talking. (laughs) But, uh, and then another writer was like, but he doesn't touch her. He doesn't throw anything. He doesn't really threaten her. He just gets angry. No crime has been committed. No crime has been committed. And then- so I was like, well, they can't really call HR because he doesn't work there. And then as that was happening, I realized, oh, this is the scene. This is the scene we need. It wrote itself. Yes. And it was that thing where you just kind of say like, oh, this is it. You pose it and go, well, what would actually happen and just show the problem. Mm-hmm. And so we went back and reshot it. Throughout this season, but especially in these first two episodes, there is a thematic and aesthetic connection to Goodfellas in a way, in part because we're seeing Barry lash out at people that he loves, which of course reminds me of an hour and a half into Goodfellas. I mean, it wasn't like consciously was like, oh, let's do Goodfellas. But, you know, you watch something 20 times over 30 years or something, it becomes ingrained in you. You know, it wasn't until I was mixing the last episode of season two that I was like, oh my God, this is Taxi Driver. (laughs) You know, we're just, we're doing Taxi Driver. This is embarrassing. Um, Was that a good realization yeah i mean i I mean everybody has those things like i've said that to other filmmakers and they're like well everything is that (laughs) you know like scorsese's doing godard and fassbender and Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and all these other things but no it wasn't conscious but i think the copa wonder and goodfellas is a great example of a wonder that actually tells a story some wonders that you see they don't need to be a wonder you go why does this all need to be one shot 
And so that one, I was like, oh, well, the one in episode one, it's Sally's character entering her, the set of her show and everything that's expected of her. And it was very kind of autobiographical because it's how I feel on the set of Barry. And I just thought, well, how can I do this emotionally? When I come on a set, I always feel very small. The actual stage is massive. And then the sets are tall. And so I was like, oh, why don't we... I want to start very wide. And so she looks very small coming onto the set. And then we slowly start to move in on her. We're dollying with her. And then you you end in a very tight profile of her. So going from this very objective point of view to this kind of subjective thing. And that I know, not consciously, is like, oh, it's a Copa shot. But then when I watched it, I was like, oh, that's very much me watching Goodfellas all the time since I, whenever it came out, I was 12 when that movie came out and being like, that tells a story, you know? When you're 10, you watch Taxi Driver with your father, right? I watched it at a uh, kid's uh, sleepover. At a kid's sleepover? Yeah, older brother tried to blow the younger kid's mind. (laughs) 16-year-old brother came in and was like, all right, dude, here's what y'all are going to watch, you know? I grew up in Oklahoma. All right, guys, shut up. Here we go. Taxi Driver and Clockwork Orange, same night. Double feature. Double feature. Is it true that you haven't slept actually from that day on? <laughs> yeah, then people are going, you have anxiety? <laughs> but uh, it was like a double mind blower kind of thing. You said at that time, at age 10, you were sporting a disgusting rat tail of a haircut. Yes, I think I probably thought I had long hair. <laughs> I think in my head, I looked like Jimmy Page or something. But I didn't. I looked like a disgusting child. Seems a little harsh on yourself. No, you haven't seen the pictures. I mean, it's very heavy metal parking lot, you know. It's just, it's not good. And it's a baseball picture. There's one where I'm like, my baseball Little League picture. If you saw it, you were like, well, that was taken in 1987 or whatever it was, 88. But that version of you, that 10-year-old self watching Taxi Driver, wasn't it there that you made some sort of connection that someone is directing this movie. Yeah, yeah. The first shot was the Travis Bickle shot, him on the phone. The scene gives me great anxiety. Yeah, he takes Sybil Shepard to a porn movie, just talking about it's making me nervous. And then she leaves and it's really embarrassing. And you could see it as like he's purposely doing it to sabotage the date or whatever he's doing. And then he calls her, he sent her flowers and she hasn't called him back. So he calls her to be like, hey, did you get my flowers? And he's on a payphone. And as he's talking to her, it's so hard to watch. The camera then just dollies off of him, dollies down the wall and lines up like on a hallway. And I thought, oh, the movie doesn't want to watch this. You can do that. You can have kind of a subjective, emotional camera. That movie does it. I mean, you know, when uh, Travis Bickle shoots Harvey Keitel, in the doorway, that's another scene because the way it's framed is from the point of view of someone sitting on a stoop across the street. So we, the audience, are just sitting on a stoop across the street and we're watching two guys argue and one guy shoots the other guy and then Scorsese just stays there and you just watch Travis Bickle and then he sits down. (laughs) So now it's just us and Travis Bickle. (laughs) And in the background, it's brilliant, there's a TV on. Like you're seeing an apartment behind him and there's a TV on in the background. So you just get this sense that life is being led around you and this violence is taking place while everybody else is just going about their day. And and uh, yeah, it just affected me in a massive, massive way. Throughout your teenage years, you become increasingly obsessed 
with movies. You spend time at a place called Sound Warehouse in the video section, I think endlessly nagging clerks about eight and a half and when it's going to be there. You weren't an especially gifted student. Your French teacher described you in, in such a way. Do you remember what she said? She said, uh, Guillaume is very... Is that you? Yeah, that's me, William Guillaume. I think I'm saying it right, but I'm terrible at French. Uh, but it was very funny. One day, maybe he'll be on Saturday Night Live. He has a 43 in his class. <laughs> <laughs> he will not be speaking French. He will not be speaking French on Saturday Night Live. So I was, a, I was like a fuck up, but it wasn't like, you know, I think everybody thought I was probably on drugs, but I was actually the opposite. I wasn't drinking or doing drugs. I was just weird. So you didn't even have an excuse. For- I didn't have an excuse. I remember like the cool English teacher, like the guy who was like Donald Sutherland in Animal House, you know, that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was talking to some stoner kids and I heard him. He goes, what? No way. And he yelled across the classroom. Hater, you don't smoke the doobage. It, that didn't inspire you to try? It just makes me tired. I just get like tired. Anything, even drinking, I just get like, I just get kind of (laughs) smiley. I just smile a lot and I'm like, oh, that's fun. I look like I'm fun when I'm drunk, but I'm not. (laughs) At 17, you are, I think, like in the throes of loving movies and and spending most of your time watching them instead of doing classwork. Yeah. It's around that time that I believe. Your grandfather passes away. That's right, yeah. His name was Jack Patton. Jack Patton, yeah. He lived down the street from you. Uh-huh. He passed away of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. You said when he died, that was a massive turning point in my life. It was my first traumatic realization that this all ends, and it instilled in me some impulse to push past my fears and inhibitions and try to go to be a filmmaker. Yeah, that's true. Again, on this, like, subconscious level it wasn't the thing that you you know see in the movies where it's like a the light bulb happens yeah it's me looking at the ocean because there was no ocean in oklahoma so i'd be looking at like you know a pond but it was this kind of weird feeling of finite everything's going to end at some point ephemeral ephemeral that's what i meant to say and yeah there's nothing you can um do about that he actually got it the way that you would hope to which was he was surrounded by you know all his loved ones and it's the way you we all hope to go you know and so that was just something that lack of a better word of confidence kind of kicked in of okay i'm gonna do this i'm gonna figure out how to do this and so then i was like i'm going to arizona (laughs) again i'm not smart i just went i'm gonna go to arizona and then headline yeah. from this podcast, Bill Hader, not smart, uh, not bright. No, I went to Arizona as Jimmy Kimmel went, wait, you went out of state to go to community <laughs> college. And I was like, yeah, yes, I did. Well, one was Art Institute of Phoenix. It was like a trade school. And then a kid there said Scottsdale Community College, they actually have an Airy BL. And I went, oh, wow. And they have a couple of Airy S's and they had like film cameras and they had Avids. And this is in 1997. So I just thought, holy shit, I got to get my hands on that because digital wasn't what it is today. And so I went there, enrolled, immediately made, spent like $3,000 on a short film that I never finished. <laughs> Was that the one? By uh, Nick Jasinovic? Oh, no. He's the one uh, by Nick Jasinovic I acted in. He's the one. Nick Jasinovic. Do you know Nick? We play basketball every Sunday. Oh, yeah. Nick, uh, he's the one that's Mick's movie. It was a movie 
that was just bad. And then I moved to Los Angeles. Nick was there, a guy named Justin Carlton, a guy named John Humber. And we just started PAing. So you're PAing across a bunch of different kinds of film sets, some big, some small. I think you find a lot of this work on the back page of The Hollywood Reporter. Yeah. One of the first jobs you have is on a film called Final Payback. Yes, with Richard Grieco. What was your job on that movie? So there's a guy named John Saxon. Do you know who he is? No. Okay, so John Saxon, he's the sheriff in Nightmare on Elm Street. He was in Enter the Dragon. He's in a great, very bad movie called Mitchell. I I was a big John Saxon fan, and uh, I got to run lines with him. So I got to sit there as a PA and I thought I had made it because I was just being like, sir, your wife is dead. And he was like, <laughs> what do you mean she is dead? What are you saying? You know, and I was like, sir, I don't know what to tell you. And I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And I think it was a scene where he pulls up in a really nice car and hops out and they go, so your your wife's been murdered. And he's like, no, you know, and, and, and so I got to run lines with him and then I had to back the car up. It's like a super nice Rolls Royce that the producer owned. And I went, okay. And I had to back it up. He drives up like a super windy driveway. (laughs) So I just would sit and just very slowly back this thing up. I would just start to hit something and it would be like, and now I just hear Anton Saxon go, no. (laughs) (laughs) It went on like this for a few years doing all these kinds of jobs. Yes, I did that. I was on, me and Nick Jasinovic worked on a, a kids movie called Two Little Heroes. There was a stunt coordinator on there named Solly Marks that Nick and I were just obsessed with and we would talk to him a lot. He like I think he was from Russia and he like smoked a pipe and he was the stunt coordinator but he looked like like an academic kind of These experiences at, at some point you reach the end of the road and and you don't want to PA anymore. You start working as an assistant editor at places and then doing all this work. Eventually you start performing at Second City Los Angeles. From there, Megan Mullally comes to watch Matt Offerman, loves your performance, says, I'm going to call Lauren Michaels. When you get the call to go audition, do you remember that day? So I was in a edit bay. It was a company called Triage. And I was working on Iron Chef America. And a editor had come in frustrated because I had put his project together wrong. As the assistant editor, you stay up all night and you're kind of prepping what that editor has to do the next day and as he was talking to me i saw a phone call a a number from i didn't recognize it was megan mullally and she said hey it's megan and she said i uh told lauren michaels about you and he he, he'd like to meet you i hope that's okay and i don't really know what she said after that i kind of just well and then there's a line on the someone beeping in on the other line and i like, hello. And it was like, hi, my name is Lindsay Shookus. I work at the talent department SNL and Laura Michaels would like to meet you. Um, who do I call? Like, who's your manager? And I was like, I don't have a manager. <laughs> and she's like, well, he'd like to meet you. Can you fly out next week? And it was uh, a whirlwind. The night of your audition happens, I think, a few weeks later at the UCB on 26th Street in New York. Yeah, well, we had done a show in L.A. first. Right, but you had packed it with all your friends. And yeah, and, and and he was like, this is all your friends. Jess Novick was at that show, actually. <laughs> he was cheering really loud, and then it yeah, was like... Yeah, sell the bits. Yeah, it was like, he was like, oh, these are all his friends. So <laughs> now you got to come to New York and do it for a New York crowd. Mm-hmm. And in the front row was Seth Meyers, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Mike Shoemaker, Lauren Michaels, Marcy Klein terrifying but you know what at the time though i had nothing to lose and my sister flew out from oklahoma so i just remember like 
hanging with her and like the guys in the sketch group I was in, Matt Offerman and Mel Cowan and Eric Filipkowski and and what's going to happen? Like, well, this, this is something I'll tell my grandkids, you know. Lauren said that one of the impressions that pushed you over the edge was of Peter Falk. <sighs> what the heck was the bit? <laughs> he does do a thing where he says, uh, this is a Jawa. Now listen over and look at me. What we're going to do here is we're going to play a Jawa. These, these are from the sand, the tattooing. Okay. I mean, that kind of show what kind of like where I was at at that time. It was real nerd humor. Stuff now that would drive me crazy. <laughs> Where I'm like, oh, stop it with the Star Wars refs. You know? Well, your tastes change. Yeah, you become like a withering snob. Is that what, <laughs> how you describe yourself now? Yeah, yeah, that's my license plate. Yeah. Withering snob? They yeah. really, they, they put that all on there. Yeah, they put it all on there. I have two license plates, actually. Just stuck them together. On SNL, once you're on the show in 2005, you said that there's this thing with funny people where you think that if you're not good at this, you're not good at anything. So with SNL, I was like, if this doesn't work, I'm fucked because I'm bad at everything else. That is kind of true. It was like the only two things I growing up that I had confidence in was I'm funny and I, I really think I can make a movie. I really think I could be a good director. You said that to your father after a basketball game? Yes, after a basketball game. I said, Dad, I think the only two things I'm good at are this. And it was in reference to I suck at basketball. <laughs> so I was like, I can make a movie and I'm funny. That's it. Everything else, like, don't count on me. And then the funny thing is it never really changed. <laughs> You know, when you get to SNL and your whole worth, do you know what I mean, is being funny. You get there and then you're doing stuff and you're not, it's not funny. And then you can get in your head and then go, oh my God, maybe I'm not good at this stuff. I'm not funny, you know. Did you feel like that in the early days where you, where you didn't think you were funny? Yes. And a lot of that was just getting confidence and kind of realizing like, oh, everybody has ups and downs. And it was kind of helpful for me to f see people that I did find funny, like Fred Armisen or Will Forte bomb. You know, or you would see Steve Martin come back and host and do a thing that didn't work and go, huh. And I would, so I got to study that and go, okay, this is just part of the process is failing. And, and then it became a little easier. I think I just got to a place where I go, well, how do I alleviate my anxiety here? And I was like, oh, you know what? Like I could just make it where, what are the things I can control? What I can control are bring two good pieces to the table read every Wednesday and I'm good in everybody else's sketches. And that's it. And then it was just kind of like whatever people put me in, I would just do the best job I could. This anxiety you've mentioned a few times, it, it's, as you've said, pervasive in those SNL years. And I have to say, there's such a stunning disconnect between the joy you're bringing people at home versus the kind of pain it seemed to be causing you. You know, a lot of it's like the anticipation of it, the anticipation of going out, the anticipation of five minutes to air. You, I just would go to the place where I'm like, I'm going to pass out. And, but the whole week that clock starts. So starting Monday, when I walk in, I would always have this feeling like, okay, the, the clock started and getting you to that point where you're on air on Saturday. And it was just uh, the first four seasons, especially, it was just crippling. It was really hard. I can see it in some of my performances where I put my hand in front of my face or I will grab onto things. I just, it's like I'm literally trying to hide or steady myself. Vanessa Bear and I just were talking and we talked about a time where we were in a sketch and I grab onto her arm midway through the sketch and she kind of was like, oh, 
why is it, why are you doing this? And then she kind of looked at me and saw in my eyes that I was going through it. Yeah. Going through it. And just like, we just went through the thing. And then after at good nights when, you know, we're all waving goodbye and stuff, we hugged, she was said, Hey, are you okay? And I was like, Oh no, sorry about that. <laughs> you know, I just had a moment. I think as the season, as the show went on and everything, I got a little bit better with it, but Julian Assange cold open. I mean, if you watch that, I can tell I'm trying to hide myself into this wine glass that they gave me because that cold open was given to me like that day. And Seth Meyers, it was a thing you would show up and Seth Meyers would go, hey, you're Julian Assange in the cold open. And I would just full on spin out. The thing that would calm me down is just read it over and over and over again to the point where I really get it and I would know what I was supposed to do and I would get the rhythms right and everything. And then between dress and air, they change it all. <laughs> So yeah, I just would have a panic attack. They were torturing you. Yeah, but you know what? I think That's to everybody show. else is that they just made us saw me being dramatic or, you know, Colin Jost, if he had to make changes to a sketch before air, I would be following him around being like, okay, just give them to me the minute they get out of the copier. And he'd be like, will you please relax? You know? You said I'd wake up Saturday morning crying, hitting my head against the shower, saying, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. That does sound like a kid who doesn't want to go to school. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that feeling, yeah. And I and I had that, you know. I remember being a kid and just being very the social anxiety of walking into school and it being very big and especially when you got into like 6th grade and you're around like freshmen in high school and people like that, you know, walking around, it was all very intimidating. So it was like, oh, this would be so much better if I didn't have to go. And and yeah, yeah, I would get really worked up and uh Maggie Carey would come down who I was married to at the time would come down and calm me down and it was you know very lovely of her and you know she would do like breathing that she had learned in like uh Lamaze type breathing stuff you know to try to calm my nerves down and and uh it was really sweet but yeah man it was it was rough it was a rough go it it seemed like one person that made it a little bit easier in addition to Maggie, was John Mulaney coming on the show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Now, usually in interviews, people want to replay and, and talk about all these sketches and characters you've done. The truth is SNL is extremely litigious, and there's no chance we're going to be able to get that clip. <laughs> so there is one sketch that I'd like to have on record because it's so good, and it, and it never made the air. It's a uh, samurai film. <laughs> directed by James L. Brooks. And John and I wrote it. The title was called, But What If You're Wrong? Yeah, But What If You're Wrong? It was like a samurai film, and uh, you see them fighting, and it's like, honor, you know, uh, family, blah, blah, blah. They're fighting, and it's like, dating after 40? And it was me and Fred as two guys, and I was like, uh, gave her the keys to my house, now I have a Netflix subscription. And then like really violent fighting. And then that song, uh, Walking on Sunshine, kicks in. And then it was us as samurais. But it was all like, uh, look, in the book of life, I just want to be in the acknowledgments. Yeah, I think Abby Elliott and Nassim Pedrad were two geishas, but speed walking in Central Park. And then one of them like runs into a light pole and goes like, whoa, and falls down. When you pitched this, to Lorne Michaels. Do you remember what he said? No. <laughs> he said, Samurais? James L. Brooks? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, we always liked James L. Brooks, and I think in a Stefan we put in uh, a, the a club was written and directed by James L. Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> he probably sounded different than I just did. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know. Uh, I like this, but why now? But yeah, that was one we wrote. We also wrote one that was like, we did a Mr. Belvedere sketch because there's like a Belvedere, you know, there's like the thing where the guy played Mr. Belvedere uh, at a table read sat on his balls and had to go to the hospital. So we did that scene. It was me playing Mr. Belvedere and I was standing up and then I was like, I just want to say before I sit down how much I love all of you. (laughs) (laughs) And being on this show is just one of the greatest delights of my life and I want you all to know that I just love you. And then I start to sit down and right before I sit down, I go, another thing real quick, I just want you to know that... These scripts are some of the f- most fantastic scripts I've ever seen in my life. It's almost a little Alan Alda-like. Yeah, yeah. And then like the thing was that it was Urban Legend Theater, and it was Mick Jagger playing himself hosting Urban Legend Theater. So he's like, I'm Mick Jagger hosting <laughs> Theater. And then he says, uh, it's called, so when you sit on your balls, it's called pulling a bel- Belvedere. And then Will Forte gave us our final line because we were like, yeah, we don't know how to end this sketch. He goes, oh, you should have him sit down and, not scream or anything, just sit down and stare for a bit and then go, I just myself myself. <laughs> yeah, those did that didn't make it on either. It was just kind of like, guys, come on. It was like, come on, that's hilarious. No. You know, it didn't make it on SNL, but it it's made it here. on here. It made it on here, and I think John will be happy that it got it's out there, the Mr. Belvedere. John sketch. will be happy it's on Talk Easy. Talk easy. Now he knows Mr. Belvedere's sketch, which uh, no one found funny. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I liked it. I liked oh, it. Thanks. We'll be right back after a quick break. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. 
This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You know, we were talking about that Julian Assange cold open where you're clearly having a panic attack. And, and I'll say, I rewatched it. There's something happening. Yeah. If I didn't know to look for it, I wouldn't have known. But that night, I think it's December 10th of 2010, Jeff Bridges is hosting. Yeah. Jeff Bridges gives you some advice that night that seems like you listen to and carry with you. Into yeah, the next it was huge. Yeah. And I got a chance to tell him this on the red carpet at the Golden Globes. I saw him and went over and and said, hey, man, you said this to me. And he was like, I said what? You know, and I said, you said, uh, he said, you know, I worked with Robert Ryan and Robert Ryan before every take would start sweating. And I said, wow, after all these years, you still get afraid. And he said, oh, I'd be really afraid if I wasn't afraid. And he was like, that fear, like, that's your buddy. That's your friend. Like you take that with you and don't push it away. When you push it, it makes it worse, you know? And that really hit me and it was very gracious. And I just, that was huge. I can hear Jeff Bridges saying, it's your buddy. Yeah. It's your buddy, man. (laughs) Could you imagine? That's what he would say on it. You take that advice, eventually leaving SNL after eight years in 2013. You take that nervousness and, and channel it into your work moving forward. You're great in this film called Skeleton Twins immediately after that. There's another film called Trainwreck. <laughs> Don't worry. Hey, man, it's all right. It's okay. No, You're it's okay. Jeff, Jeff Bridges hey, buddy. Hey, you can do it. It's okay. It's Trainwreck, but you can call it whatever you want, man. I think I said Twainwreck. Twainwreck, because I'm a little boy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a scared little boy. It's Twainwreck. I'm terrified. This is talk easy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Anything else? No, no, no. That was fun. I'm done. <laughs> Bill's like, I'm so glad you finally messed up. Oh, thank God he screwed up. Now I have the upper hand. Who has all the status in here now? <laughs> I was throwing a perfect game. Yeah. Uh, you know, you make these films. Eventually, you and Alec Berg talk about making a show for HBO. Do you remember those early conversations you had about making Barry? Well, initially... We were talking about making another show. About Tulsa, Oklahoma. About Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a guy I grew up with, and I was going to play that guy. And then it just, you know, we had the first episode lined out, and then after that, I was like, this really doesn't go anywhere. And I'll admit, Breaking Bad had just ended, and I don't watch a lot of television. I tend to just watch a lot of movies, and I read, which you'd never guess from hearing me speak, but, but, you know. What was your license plate again? withering babies no wait what was it (laughs) (laughs) withering dumbass what i think snob withering snob 
Hello, we're Withering Snob. We're from Sacramento. And yeah, that's actually a Philip Roth novel. It's called Withering Snob. Yeah, so I liked Breaking Bad, and I was talking to Alec. I was like, you know, it'd be good to have something that has, like, stakes to it and that moves and has, like, a narrative propulsion to it. And I, I also read, like, comic books, but not, like, not necessarily, you know, like these DC Vertigo books and... Their stuff would have like some depth to it, but also it moved. It's like, what? Yeah, you know, I want to do something like that. And we were at S and W Diner in Culver City, and I said, "What if I was a hitman?" And he said, "I hate hitmen. Like the skinny tie, two Glocks in their hand. I just that's lame. I don't want to do that." And I was like, "No, it'll be me, just me." And then we started talking, and I still to this day don't know how. What we we said, "What if he takes an acting class?" But I do remember Alex saying, "Hitman taking an acting class is kind of cool." He's like, "That's a show." And I think the reason was was it was like, oh, th- those uh, the juxtaposition, the juxtaposition of the two things, living in the shadows versus living in the spotlight. It was like, oh, this is really helpful. And so we just started talking it out, and then you know our first drafts of it were like the acting world was great, but the hitman world we tried to. It was more inspired by movies, mm-hmm. you know? It was like, the Hitmen were all at a barbecue together and, like, all this stuff. And then Amy Gravitt and Casey Bloys at HBO read it, and their note was like, the acting world seems great. Hitman world, uh, like, I don't know what this is. And uh, they were right. And then that was when I was like, well, what if he's a Marine? And then suddenly that just brought it all into place. Alex said, part of what I was interested in with Barry was this idea of having a gift that you hated. Bill was like that on SNL, so suddenly the story was personal. Yes. Not that I hated it, but it was also like this gift to be able to be funny, like I told my dad in the car, you know, and do voices and stuff. But then having to go on Saturday Night Live on live television, which was like really physically hurting me. You know, I have like autoimmune problems. I have all types of stuff that I have to kind of deal with. And when I talk to people, they're like, were you ever under a lot of stress? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I was. Again, I did it and I got through it and I never want anybody to think I'm blaming the show or something. It's It was just my chemical, the way I'm made up. It's just who I am. So it was like, oh, what if it's like a guy who's really good at killing people? That's like his gift. And then he just wants to make a better life for himself. There was that personal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to be able to. That's why I learned is writing forever. I would write so much just I'd write full screenplays and you back up and you're like, oh, this is just about other movies or this is like (laughs) movie logic. Not like it's like completely ripping off a thing, but it's like, oh, I got really inspired and I wrote this thing and it's got cool sequences in it. But the emotion wasn't anything personal that I could really latch on to and and write from. So that's what Barry was the first thing I really started to do that with. Well, it completely comes through because at the end of the pilot, there's a scene between you and Henry Winkler. He's in his Escalade and you walk up to him and ask should I be in this class? Do you think I'm good enough to be in this class? But the point of this scene, while watching it at home, your sister Cara saw it. She said, I couldn't believe that Bill was finally showing himself, finally being vulnerable to being denied and having his heart broken. I was almost brokenhearted watching it. Why don't we take a look at that scene for a second? This is from the pilot episode of Barry. What you did was dog shit. I mean, really, really awful. 
Dumb acting, I call it. Do you know why? Because acting is truth. And I saw no truth. So here's my advice to you. You go back to whatever nook of the world you call home and you do whatever it is you're good at. Because this is not it. You want to know what I'm good at? I'm good at killing people. <laughs> yeah, when I got back from Afghanistan, I uh, was really depressed. You know, like I didn't leave my house for months. And uh, this friend of my dad's, he's, uh, he's like an uncle to me. He, uh, he helped me out and he gave me a purpose. He told me that, that what I was good at over there could be useful here. And uh, it's a job, you know? I think the money's good. And uh, these people I take out, like they're, they're bad people, you know, like they're pieces of shit. Um, but lately, you know, I've, like I'm not sleeping and uh, that depressed feeling's back, you know? Like, like, I know there's more to me than that. But maybe, I don't know, maybe there's not. Maybe this is all I'm good at, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think my sister called me after that and she was like, wow, that's like, yeah, it's very personal. That's kind of your, you know, that like kind of uh, anxiety, wanting to be kind of accepted. The way he's at in that scene, look, if you had showed up to my high school, you'd be like, oh, he seems fine. You know, it's kind of what you're saying at SNL. But I'm an actor. <laughs> you know, you're you're good at hiding stuff and being like, everything's fine. Everything's great. But underneath is just a lot of turmoil. And uh, getting to kind of write about it and play it in that way was great. The interesting thing on a side note about that scene is that Henry Winkler had to leave when we shot that. So I'm doing that whole monologue to like a, a mark on a sandbag that's on a C-stand because Henry left. <laughs> he had to leave. It's not his own. It's not his fault. But I did that to that. And I was like, all right. And we did four takes of it. And I was like, all right. Well, I guess everybody go home now. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you do that scene, did you feel better? Yeah. Well, you it happened a little bit in Skeleton Twins, but it is nice where you feel like this is like an artistic endeavor in the same way writing and directing is where you're, you are having some personal expression in it, even though you're playing a killer or in Skeleton Twins, it's a suicidal person feels like he's a failure. It doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's something that you, there's a Venn diagram there between who the character is and you are, and, and you, you want to play that. You know what the big thing was too, was being able to have the confidence to go, I'm a good writer and I think I could direct. And that was always the thing. I had zero confidence even saying out loud. But it was nice being able to have a table read and go, this stuff is working. And again, it's not just me. It's Alec Berg, Duffy Boudreaux, Liz Sarnoff. Takes know, a village. It takes a village. A lot of people. But getting that confidence was very new. That was helpful. Just being able to say that. Yeah, just being able to say without mumbling it to myself, like, oh, I'm a writer or a director, you know. I didn't was even comfortable saying I was an actor until I was doing press for Skeleton Twins. I was like, oh, I, you know, I do sketch comedy. So it's not some false modesty thing or whatever. I mean, I do think sometimes I do think it's an Oklahoma thing. I do think like where I grew up saying 
I want this. You know, it's not attractive. Right. Outside of ordering something on the menu. Exactly. Outside of, yes, uh, buying a car. It's really disturbing. So I've always kind of not been that way. And it's been helpful in this endeavor. It's funny. As you were saying that, finally recognizing that, oh, I, I can direct. I can be the thing that 17-year-old you on the heels of your grandfather passing, that you are that thing that you wanted to become as a teenager. Yeah, it's really nice. I mean, it is a thing where something that's very important to me to not lose track of that, what I learned or got from his life and his death. That time is precious. Yeah, yeah, that's like something I go back to a lot. But that realization that time is short, Yeah, it seems like that story Del Close used to always tell you, a Second uh, City staple. Yeah, he, he didn't tell me this, I read it, but it is a thing that really stuck with me of the skydiver who uh, jumps out of a plane and dances in the sky and pulls a parachute and goes to the ground. And this one sky dancer was doing their sky dance, pulled the parachute, and it, it malfunctioned. So the sky dancer knew that they were going to die, and the sky dancer continued to dance all the way to the ground. And it's kind of like, well, that's what we're doing, you know? We're all headed towards the ground, <laughs> you know? And it just kind of depends on what you choose to do. It seems like what you've chosen to do is basically try to recapture that feeling that you saw your mother have in your childhood watching The Hunchback of yeah, Notre Dame. Yeah, 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 100%. Where she saw Charles Lawton swing down, save uh, Reno Sullivan. And she went, oh, like that. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, it gave, it gave me chills because she just was so shocked by that, you know, or just so moved by it. That's the stuff that, uh, yeah, you live for. It's, it's my favorite thing. It's like I love watching movies with people who are emotive. Uh, I'm dear, dear friend is Darcy Carden. And she's like that. You know, she'll watch the episodes of this show and, and her reactions are just like, oh, my God. Oh, oh, oh. And yeah, my mother, you know, was that way, you know. Do movies still produce the same in you? Yeah, yeah, that's the best feeling ever. And now that I have children, it's like watching it with them and, and us, whether it's good or bad, having those feelings. But I was watching uh, Knights of Kiberia and the ending of that movie just knocks me out, man. And it tricks me every time too. I don't want to give it away for people, but... I just was so moved and just completely. There's also a scene in it where she goes to a hypnotist and she's this thing and they hypnotize her. And it's just beautiful. I mean, and just what it says. And again, George Saunders, you know, we've talked about this too. You can get really, uh, you know, theoretical about it or whatever. But at the end, of it, it's all just emotion and it's all intuitive. And there's just something that I can't even describe it to you of why the end of Knights of Kiberia lays me out but it does why the end of Akiru or Coen Brothers Serious Man why the end of that movie just floors me and I remember the lights came up and I just I just sat there <laughs> you know I mean it's just amazing well that feeling you're describing it's one I've had many times watching Barry oh thank you and uh, I'm just glad that 17 year old who really thought it was a good idea to go out of state for community college <laughs> Oh. oh, Bill. I'm glad you made it around. Thanks, pal. I really appreciate it, man. Bill Hader, lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you, pal. That was a really great interview. We did it. 
that's our show if you enjoyed today's episode and if you've listened this far i have to imagine you enjoyed at least some of it be sure to leave us a review on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i know it's silly and and kind of arbitrary but even in 2023 it is still the best way for new listeners to find the podcast i want to give a special thanks to matt labov hbo and of course bill Hader. The series finale of Barry premieres this Sunday, May 28th on HBO or Max or HBO Max or whatever they have decided to call their company in the dog days of television. We'll include the link to watch in our show notes, along with more of Bill's work at TalkEasyPod.com. For more conversations like this one, check out Norman Lear, Alan Ruck, Natasha Leone, Bob Odenkirk, Carol Burnett, Larry Wilmore, Judd Apatow, Abby Jacobson, Nick Offerman, and George Saunders. If you'd like to purchase one of our Talk Easy mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with the inimitable Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. And finally, as always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is CJ Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Chenoy. Photographs today are by Jenna Jones. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Kaylin Ung, who recently graduated from Chapman University. We wish her well. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here this Sunday with a new episode featuring director Nicole Holofcener. Until then... Stay safe and so long. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.